17. <clears throat> Tonight I want to talk about righteousness. I want to talk about the righteousness of God and the righteousness of people. I want to talk about the relationship between Christ and the law based on what we learn from the Scripture. And we want to see how the law was fulfilled in Christ. And we want to understand what it means when we say that we are free from the law. And then, of course, we want to be informed of the dangers of self-righteousness. Just a little spoiler here. I know you already know this, but whenever I talk about the righteousness of people, I'm talking about self-righteousness, and I'm talking about something that doesn't work, and it doesn't get us anywhere. Amen. Jesus was addressing crowds early in His ministry. We don't know um, what all the circumstances were to where He uh, got this crowd together, but His reputation was growing, and He was becoming famous in the region. And in chapter 5 of Matthew, it depicts to us what we call the Sermon on the Mount. We don't know exactly where it was. It was somewhere in the region of the Sea of Galilee, but it was here that Jesus expressed to those that would hear a, a version of Scripture, a version of righteousness that wasn't being taught in the synagogues, the house of worship. These people had been taught one thing about what it means to have righteousness, and Jesus got up in all the simplicity and all the metaphors and even the humor that he used, people understood clearly what it really meant to be righteous. And of course, there's a whole lot of things that he talks about, a lot of subjects in these couple of chapters that, that, um, that encompass this sermon. But I want to focus in beginning at verse 17. After Jesus speaks to them about the Beatitudes, the blessed are they which, you know those, and there's several of those. He talks about the role of God's people being the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And then he says in verse 17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, verse 18, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus said this in verse 20. And this must have been a shocker for all the people that were there. And honestly, it was a verse that I struggled to understand early on in my Christian faith because it didn't seem to make sense to me. But we're going to look at it tonight if I just hush up and just get there. But let's read verse 20. For I say unto you, Jesus said, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Unless our righteousness 
is greater than the righteousness of the religious leaders of the day of Jesus, we will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. We're going to look at that in just a moment, but we need to go back in verse 17 because remember I said that we're going to talk about the relationship between Jesus and the law. The first thing we need to do is understand what the law really was. He said in verse 17, Don't think that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now because of the things that Jesus would say and had said before, accusations were arising that this person, this teacher, this country rabbi from up in the north, that he was teaching things that were not consistent with the law. Now we might want to ask, for those of you, you probably already know, but if there's anybody that might be newer in the faith, what exactly is the law? Well, the law, as the Scripture um, speaks about, was essentially the central part of the Scripture of the Jewish people. It was encompassed in a part of the Scripture that we know today to be the Old Testament. Specifically, the law was the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In these books... Jesus, through the ministry of His servant Moses, who led people out of Egypt, would commanded these people all the things that would govern their lives and their worship. There are essentially three parts of the law. This isn't an official division that I know of. You may not learn about this in the scholarly halls of our seminaries, but it's the Gospel according to Brent. The three parts of the law were the civic law, the ceremonial law, and the moral law. The civic law, just really briefly, were laws that taught the people how they were to govern their society. It was about how to treat your family, how to treat your servants. It dealt with agricultural issues and how to let a seventh of your land lie fallow or empty for every, or every seven years, rather. And, and so it can rest and be replenished. It talked about uh, 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 all kinds of things. Uh, just it, it, if it were written today, it would be, you know, how fast you can drive. It, this was the civil law of the land. It just dealt with how you organize as a society. The second part of the law, the ceremonial law, was how you organized yourself and how you expressed yourself in worship. It involved the construction of the holy house, the tabernacle, the mobile tent where God's glory would meet with the tribes of Israel. It dealt with the sacrifices. It dealt with the Sabbaths and the feasts and the dietary laws. And even if you got a, a leprosy and then you were healed, what did you do about that? You go show yourself to the priest. You do all these things. This is the ceremonial part of the law. The spirit and the worship life of the, of the Israelites. And then you had the moral part of the law. The moral part of the law, if you really want to know the basis of that, just read the Ten Commandments. Right. It's how you relate to God. It's how you relate to other people. But specifically, it's how you relate to both parties in accordance with your belief and your behavior. 
It's a moral thing not to steal. It's a moral thing not to commit adultery. You should not make graven images and bow down to them. You should keep the Sabbath day holy. You should not covet what belongs to your neighbor. Honor your parents. All these things. You should not kill. This is the heart of the moral law, the moral laws of God. So you had the civil, the ceremonial, and the moral parts of the law. And here Jesus said in verse 17, I did not come to do away with any of that. I did not come to abolish the law, rather I will fulfill it. It will be accomplished. I will do with the law and with with God's will all that I was sent to do now in the first coming and then later on in the second coming. Jesus will bring everything into rightness, even the law. So He didn't come to abolish the law. There's a misnomer that we have in churches. And that is that when Jesus came, the laws passed away. Don't need the law anymore. Don't need any of that. Because now it is in Jesus. Well, that is true. Of course, Jesus fulfilled the law. But that doesn't absolve us from keeping the principles of that are found in the law, right? We may not all be farmers, and so we may not have to divide our land into sections and let some of it every seven years lay fallow, even though they do that today with crop rotation. It's the same principle. And there may be other things that, that they had back in their ancient society that doesn't apply to us today, but there are principles of society that we should obey. America has forgotten them, unfortunately, but we should still practice the golden rule. We should still do unto others as we would want done unto us. We should, we should behave towards other people and obey our laws and respect our leaders. And so while, the, while some of the particulars of the civil law had passed away because society has changed, the principles are still there. What about the ceremonial law? Well, the ceremonial law does not require us to offer animal sacrifices anymore at a holy altar in a holy building, does it? I hate to tell you that this church does practice animal sacrifice. But instead of getting up here, they make it to the kitchen and somehow we eat it during... And I don't know how that works, but but we had one last Sunday and it wasn't too bad, was it, brother? Yeah, we like those animal sacrifices. We don't have to offer incense and keep candles burning and bring bulls and goats and doves and, and sheep to the altar because that was fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus was the ultimate and the only Lamb of God. And the Bible says... The Bible tells us that the blood of animals cannot take away our sin. Only the blood of Jesus Christ. So we're not required to do that stuff. But there's still principles even to the ceremonial law that we need to keep. Bring the sacrifices of praise into the house of the Lord. Offer up on God's altar all these spiritual sacrifices of service with which He is well pleased. We should serve and we should do and we should sacrifice and we should surrender and we should be available to God's law all the time, right? And so, in that respect, parts of the law are still with us. Because the Bible says that the law... 
And I think it was Isaiah that said this would happen. I might be wrong on the prophet, brother, so don't fire me. But I think it was Isaiah that said that the law would be written on our hearts. Somebody in the Old Testament said that. Sorry, I read that the other day and I've been messing with so many Scriptures I forgot where that one was. We have the law of God written on our heart. The moral part of the law. Did that all pass away? Well, if it did, I guess it would be a free-for-all. We could just be like New York, right? Or San Francisco. Do whatever we want. There's no bail. There's hardly any arrests. We're all good. No, that's not it at all. We're still required to honor our spouses and our parents and our children. We're still required to be honest and not bear false witness. We don't steal. We don't murder unless it's somebody who cheers for the Philadelphia Eagles. We don't, we don't worship graven images. We, we, we don't have Saturday as our Sabbath. And by the way, I may, this, you may not agree with this or not, but technically Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath. We call it the Lord's Day. But you know what our Sabbath is? Jesus. The book of Hebrews says Jesus is our rest, and that's what the Sabbath was. So we still have the moral obligations. Jesus didn't do away with the law. He fulfilled the law, and He made it into a proper orientation with His people. But the fact is that we don't gain righteousness by keeping the law or any set of rules and regulations or traditions. Now here is something that I want you to remember. You can write it down, memorize it, make an appointment to have it tattooed on your arm if that's what it takes. And the statement is this. Jesus never violated the law. Amen. Let me just stop midway to that sentence. Because He was accused of doing it. What are some examples? Well, in Mark chapter 7, His disciples were eating with unwashed hands. Ooh, we don't do that. You know, especially today in the days of COVID, we're, we're supposed to wash, bathe, comb our hair again every time we go to the restaurant restroom and come back to the table. We've got to be exterminated, you know, just to, just to be clean enough to eat in public. That's, that's how people are taking it. But ceremonially, they would wash their hands and let the water drip down their forearms before they ate. And it was a symbol of, I'm going to honor the purity of God. And when the Pharisees saw that Jesus' disciples weren't doing that, they got upset. And they had questioned Jesus about it. And Jesus had a perfect answer for it that we're going to look at in just a moment. Another incident was when He healed a man who was crippled by the pool of Bethsaida. And this was a superstitious site where people thought an angel would come and stir up the waters and the first sick person that got into the waters when the, when the waters started moving, they would be healed. Now obviously, uh, the Bible tells us about that, but that doesn't mean the Bible believes it. That was just a local belief back then. And there was a, a, a crippled man that was trying to get into the water, but everybody would just rush over him and get into the water before he did. And for many years... He lived with that frustration. And Jesus came and healed him and said, take up your bed and go home. What's the big deal about that? It was on the Sabbath. We don't do that on the Sabbath. We don't do anything on the Sabbath. 
because that's the holy day of God. When Jesus healed a man with a withered hand, again, it was on the Sabbath and he got in trouble. Another incident, he was going through fields of grain and he and his disciples were picking the heads off the stalks of grain and rubbing out the chaff and then eating the grains, the, the kernels there, and the Pharisees saw that. I mean, they were the moral police, weren't they? And they saw that, and they said, you are acting unlawfully because that is actually working on the Sabbath. And then Jesus had to refute their argument with a story from the Old Testament when David ate the, the holy bread in the temple. And we don't have time to go into that. You're probably familiar with it. So it sounds though like Jesus did violate the law. And He did it to make a statement that, hey, the law is passed away and now you have another kind of law, another kind of life, and we're going to do what we want and you Pharisees can't say anything about it. But that's not what Jesus was doing. That's right. Now here is the important part. Jesus never violated the law, but He did violate someone's interpretation of it. There's a big difference there, isn't it? My friends, we can violate somebody's interpretation of Scripture, but we should never violate the Scripture itself. Because how it is today, no matter what you believe, it's going to run afoul with somebody's doctrine and theology. I know there's important differences and we can still love each other and get along in certain cases, but if you go to one church, you're going to be in trouble because you don't speak in tongues. If you go to another church, you're going to be in trouble because like Baptists, you're boring. If you go to this church, you should honor Mary. And if you go to another church, you should be, you know, whatever. You should be sprinkled instead of immersed in baptism. Whatever it is, we're going to run afoul of somebody's theology. But if we just read the Bible and not church tradition and not just a large doctrine that was made up by a teenage girl at the turn of the 20th century and now millions of people believe that it's valid and true. If we would just do what the Word of God said, we would be a lot better off, wouldn't we? Don't violate the Scripture, but if what you believe and if what the Bible says violates somebody's interpretation of the Scripture, you go ahead and do it. Because we want to be faithful to God, not to the traditions of people. So how did Jesus do that? Well, how much time do I have, brother? <sighs> okay. In the days of Jesus, there was a group of religious leaders and teachers of the Scripture. And you've heard me mention them many times and you know who they are. They're the Pharisees, right? right. The Pharisees are not really depicted in the best light in the Scripture. And, the, and honestly, they deserve it, don't they? I mean, they brought that on themselves. Yeah. But as far as the tradition goes they were at least originally well-meaning people. They were kind of descendants of another group of people that existed between the days of the Old and the New Testament called the Hasidim, the holy ones, the pure ones. And just like the Hasidim back did in the days of, of the Syrian empire that held sway over Israel, so the Pharisees wanted so badly to honor God's Word 
that they did whatever they could to make sure that them and Israel remained pure of corruption and pollution. Well, if we lived in the days of Jesus, we might look around and then say to them, how did that work out? You know, originally, America was a place that was fairly moral, but how's that working out now? I mean, we're so upside down, I can't even, you know, I don't even need to describe it because you know, we have such a sickness in our culture. Amen. And there was a sickness in the days of Jesus as well. Various problems, morality, and Rome was in Israel and had their influence. The people were oppressed. They had to pay taxes to a foreign government. And, and there, was, uh, there was pagan influences that was getting into the land of Israel and so forth. And it was, you know, they had their problems as well. And the Pharisees were doing their very best to hold that at bay. And they so honored the law of Scripture the Law of Moses as it was called, that throughout the centuries they would have rabbis that would write and think and discuss and pray and come up with ways to explain how the Law of God would apply to our everyday lives. So here's an example. I believe it's in the book of Numbers. Again, um, I think it was there. It's been a while since I've read it. But in the book of Numbers, a man... After the nation of Israel had been told, keep the Sabbath holy and don't do any work, a man was out there on his property gathering sticks. He was discovered. You know what happened to him? He was executed at God's command, by the way. God said that. Because this man violated His holy law. Now, if I live next to Joey... And he were out on a Saturday picking up sticks in his yard in the morning. And in the afternoon, the cops came and arrested him. And then I found out that before dinner time, he had been executed for doing that. I would very much want to know all the stuff I better not do to end up like Joey. Right? Now, who wants to be stoned to death? Who wants to be executed and lose their life over something that seemed like not a big deal picking up stones or picking up sticks? And I'm not going to take the time to go into what really I think was the issue there. It, was the, it wasn't the regulation of God, it was the attitude of the man that was doing it that caused the problems. But I would want to know. And so through the centuries, rabbis would come up with all these regulations and descriptions and teachings that would attempt to cover every aspect of our life so that we would never violate the Sabbath. Or that we would never eat unclean food. Or that we would never uh, do this or do that or miss our tithe or do the wrong sacrifice. So essentially what they did is they had a long, centuries-long commentary on the first five books of the Old Testament that wasn't written down, by the way, at that time. It was passed on orally and people memorized it. It was called the Talmud. The Talmudic tradition was what these Pharisees would abide by and they would learn it and memorize it and teach others and argue about it and divide into sects over it. You had the Hillel group and the Shammai group and maybe other offshoots of it. And, and they, this was their life. This was their doctrine. And so when Jesus got in trouble with them for healing a man on the Sabbath, they said, you're violating the Sabbath. And Jesus said... Why? Why is it wrong to do good on the Sabbath? 
Why is it wrong to heal on the Sabbath? When they were plucking grains from the wheat fields and they called Him on the carpet for that, why? What's so wrong about that? Well, that's work. Really? Is that really what it means to work? Did you know what David did? He went and got loaves of bread from the holiest place in the temple and he ate it and fed it to his hungry soldiers because they didn't have anything to eat and that was okay? Let me tell you something. We were not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for us. They were teaching the Talmud. Jesus was teaching the Word of God. They were caught up in tradition. Jesus was caught up in life and truth. They saw the law as something that would hold us down with chains so that we would not violate God's law. Jesus said, you can be free to live God's law because My Spirit is going to come into you and enable you to do it. He wasn't violating the law. He was violating somebody's interpretation of it. Folks, self-righteousness misrepresents the grace of God. When we figure that by keeping the traditions of our church or obeying all of the rules that we learn about in the Scripture, doing all the stuff that is good and that we should do, but when we think that that is what makes us righteous, we're on the wrong track. We don't yet understand grace. How do I know that? Because I've been through it. And some of you probably have been too. It's a terrible emotional ordeal that we have to go through. Self-righteousness misrepresents God's grace. But true righteousness is proof of God's grace. When you know God's grace, you will truly live according to God's will or else you're not living by the grace that you say that you have. James says, show me your faith and I'll show you my works that show that prove my faith. That was not verbatim. That was kind of my interpretation of it. But basically, if you say you have faith, is your life backing it up? That's what he was asking. Romans chapter 7, verse 12. Wherefore, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Jesus fulfilled the law. Can I have five more minutes? Ten. Fifteen. Okay. Let me do the next section. Not only does self-righteousness misrepresent God's grace, but it also is about posture. Let's look at verse 19. Well, let's read verse 18 again. I want to honor that. For verily, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Jesus was using kind of a half uh, sarcastic metaphor or figure of speech to get a point across. A jot is the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. A tittle is a little marking on one of the letters that differentiates it from another letter that looks almost like it. In seminary, I took Hebrew. And I'm glad it was pass-fail because I just barely passed. So much for the A that I was hoping for. And to me, all their letters just looked like little tri- or squares that was missing one side, little huts or whatever. 
But those that knew Hebrew could tell the difference. They could read it. And the reason why is because just a little corner of one of those huts had a little horn on it, a little protrusion. And that differentiated something that said T from something that said duh. And I, I probably got that really, really wrong. Uh, but, but that's kind of the concept. That, that little horn is a tittle. Jesus said nothing about the law is ever going to pass away. During the millennial kingdom, by the way, they're going to reinstitute the sacrifices if you interpret it that way, not because that's how people are going to be saved, but it's to remind these people that don't have the same concept of sin that we do of what it means to sin against God and the cost that is levied against that sin. Jesus said, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you upon the altar that atonement can be made for sin because it is by virtue of the blood that a covering or atonement is made for your sin. And so, the law has just changed its orientation for those that are in Christ. Now let me just say, here's another thing to have tattooed on your arm. Never, ever, ever has the law of God been about earning your salvation. Ever. Not in the Old Testament. Not in the New Testament. Not in the Millennial Kingdom. Nowhere ever was the law of God intended to enable you to become righteous by keeping its commandments. If we read the book of Romans, and we might study that. I'm not sure I'll talk to you about that. But if we read through the book of Romans, we remember that the law of God, its purpose was not to give us righteousness, but to show us that we are unrighteous and to drive us to the source of grace. What is the source of grace? God. God is the source of grace. But we needed a picture to show us how seriously God takes sin and the cost that it takes to give us salvation and redemption and forgiveness, and that is the death of the innocent for the salvation of the guilty. And until Jesus came, that was animals. But they were only a picture. But Jesus, the Lamb of God, isn't He? His sin is what takes away, or His sin, His blood is what takes away the sin of the earth. And I am glad for that. Folks, self-righteousness is about posture. It says in verse 19, Whoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Let's get back to Mark 7 real quick and then we'll be done in just a second. Probably. I don't know. In Mark 7, this is where the Pharisees got onto Jesus because His followers were eating with unwashed hands. And essentially Jesus said, you know, you guys have a funny way of honoring the law because you you do really backwards things with it. And one of the examples he gave is that he said, for instance, the law says you should honor your father and your mother that your days will be long and you'll be well on this earth. That's what the law says. You say you uphold that. But then some of you are taking your property 
that could go to the welfare of your aging parents who can't earn their own living, and you're giving it to God. Why? Why were the Pharisees doing this? They called it korban, which means what could have benefited you, I'm giving it to the Lord. Were they doing it because they were so vehemently in love with God that they just couldn't help but give their house and their bank account? No. I think it was politics. I think it was one-upsmanship. I think it was about posture. It was about prestige in community. It was about people saying, hey, look at Rabbi so-and-so. He just gave $1,000 to the temple. And meanwhile, mom and dad, who can't even walk, are sitting at home and they don't have enough to eat. But praise the Lord for Rabbi so-and-so for doing something so great. Jesus said, that's absurd. He says, your traditions are nullifying the law of God that you say you are trying to keep up and protect. You see? You are taking your traditions and you are making void, the Scripture says. You are nullifying, you are making the law of no effect. And people get hurt by it. I want to tell you something. If you have self-righteousness as the governor of your life, people are going to get hurt. Leanne and I know people going through stuff right now. And we know them enough to know that self-righteousness is very likely a part of it. We know the track record. We know the history. And people are getting hurt. I know I've hurt people with my self-righteousness before. Maybe not deliberately, maybe not in an affrontal type of way, but indirectly, they could have benefited from grace Brent, but instead they were repulsed by works Brent. That hurts. That hurts them. And I think it breaks the heart of the Lord. Self-righteousness is about posture. But true righteousness is about position. If we're going to be greatest in the kingdom of God, then we must cling to His true righteousness. Self-righteousness brings pain. For I say unto you, Jesus said, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. When the people heard that, they thought there's no way I can't get more righteous than Rabbi so-and-so. Uh-uh. Man, he's so righteous. He knows the law. He knows the Talmud. He runs the synagogues. He has a school of, of teaching himself with his own followers. People love him. They revere him. They look up to him. He does everything he can for the honor of Israel and for the God of Israel. There's no way that I can outrighteous a Pharisee. And Jesus says, oh yes, you can. You believe. You trust in my grace. You give up this foolish notion that you can earn the grace of God by your good works. Really quickly, do you know why Jesus was able to live a perfect life? Well, He was God, duh, Brent. Well, sure. But why? Not why was He God, but what does that have to do with it? It has to do with this. You see, when Jesus lived a perfect life, He didn't earn righteousness. Jesus lived a perfect life because He was 
righteousness. Amen. The righteousness of God. Amen. That sounds wonderful, doesn't it? But what does that have to do with me? Listen to what the Scripture says. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For God has made Him, Jesus, to be sin for us. Did you know that in the Hebrew, the word for sin and the word for sin sacrifice is the same word? Jesus as the sacrifice literally became sin while He was offered for us on the cross. For God has made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. The book of Hebrews says that we are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And if we are seated in Him, we literally are the righteousness of God in Him. What does that mean? It means Jesus lived perfectly because He was righteous. You are not going to live perfectly in this world and neither am I, but we can do a lot better and we can grow because in spite of our flesh, we literally have the righteousness of God on our behalf because we don't have our own. The Bible says our righteousness is as filthy rags. David said there's none righteous, no, not one. Paul said all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Give in to the grace of God because self-righteousness brings pain. I know that to be true. But true righteousness brings power. Power to live the way that you were created to live. Amen? Aren't you glad we kept that short tonight? Brother? Amen. Amen. That was good. I appreciate somebody that will study.